0: is chapter 44, Genesis chapter 44, Genesis chapter 44, before we dive into that, um, I'm, um, you may not know me, but I'm, um, I'm a father of two, I've got two little boys, uh, age three and five, and one of the things I delight doing with my sons, lots of things, but one of the things I do is enjoy reading them stories. They like stories before bed. They like stories throughout the day. In fact, whenever the kind of the whim takes them, my boys they bring me a book and say, "Daddy, would you read this to me?" And so I've read stories. But one thing I never really sort of counted on when having children of your own was when they find a story they like, they like you to read it lots to them. It's not like you just have a read through and then we move on to the next story or move on to the next activity. It's no, no. We read this story and then um, they have these fateful words that my boys say. They say, "Again, Daddy." Again, Daddy. And I remember reading one book with Levi, and no joke, we read it through 10 times back to back. And some of the kids' stories are not that bad, they're okay, but 10 times on the bounce gets a little much when you're like, oh my goodness, here we go again. He's not, like, again, Daddy, we read it again. So I read this story again. And one of their most favorite stories, which I have read numerous times, is this one The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Hands up who's heard of this story or knows this story. Who's had this read to them? This is one of my boys. So we've actually got multiple copies of this book in the house. I found today when I went looking for it. I found several copies of this book. Now, this book, um, I didn't realise this, but it's been—it was first published in 1969. That's the year my parents got married. Okay, so this is this is an old book. It's apparently sold about 30 million copies which I read on Wikipedia today, which is the fountain of all knowledge, it says, so basically, for every minute since since it's been published, it's sold a copy. For every minute since it's been published, apparently it's sold a copy, 30 million. And if you know the story of the Very Hungry Caterpillar, it's the story of a caterpillar that's very hungry, hence the title, and he eats through a whole bunch of things, but then something happens at the end of the story. What happens at the end of the story of the Very Hungry Caterpillar? He turns into, as it says here, a beautiful caterpillar butterflies. So the whole story is, and I've read this so many times with my boys, that he eats through, eats through this, and eats through this, and eats through that. But the story in a sense is about transformation. You have a caterpillar at the beginning, and at the end of it, you get a butterfly. And I know when talking to my boys about this story and talking genuinely, they still struggle to get their head around the fact that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And Levi recently, he, um, he, they did a bit in school about this and he came home t- talking about cocoons and chrysalises and was very impressed with what he knew, but he was still, this, this, this caterpillar becomes a butterfly and the transformation is stunning between when you look at a caterpillar and we found caterpillars in the garden. You know, daddy look, found a caterpillar and oh look, it's kind of fluffy and lots of legs. And you see butterflies flying around, we took them to a butterized sanctuary for one of their birthdays and you see these beautiful butterflies and the, the difference between the two is stunning. And what we're going to look at today is a story of transformation. A story where one individual started one way, but God does something in his life, so by the end of it, he's almost unrecognizable to how he started. So the story so far with Joseph, we've been studying Joseph for a long time. Joseph, a very famous Bible character, the one of the coat of many colors, but there's so much more to his story. So we began the story, Joseph, he, he was a young man, a teenager, and he had dreams and he, he told his, his brothers, because he had many brothers, and he told his dad, I've got these dreams and these dreams basically mean you're all gonna bow down to me one day. And they all thought he was an arrogant little kind of so-and-so, particularly his brothers. He really didn't like him because he was daddy's favorite. That's why daddy gave him the coat of many colors. And so they conspired to kill him, which is quite an extreme reaction, but they obviously had extreme feelings about this. And Joseph, instead of being killed, he was sent down to Egypt as a slave, effectively dead. They'd written him off, and when he was in Egypt, he went through a whole bunch of trials. He, he got sold into a house for a man named Potiphar, but then he rose up to be kind of running the house on behalf of his master, but then his wife got involved, and she tried to seduce him, and Joseph said no, and in the end... Um, uh, Joseph's wife kind of grasped him and said he tried to he tried to rape me which Joseph didn't and Joseph was kind of he didn't have any defense and he was just a slave so he got chucked in prison but when he was in prison God was still with him and he interpreted the dreams of two people in prison the the baker and the cupbearer to Pharaoh the king and he interpreted their dreams, they came true, but then they forgot about him, and eventually one of them remembered, the cupbearer said, I remember there was a guy in prison who interpreted dreams, because Pharaoh had, had some bad dreams, didn't know what he meant. So Joseph comes out of prison, interprets Pharaoh's dreams, said, there's going to be a famine in the whole land of Egypt. You need to do something about it, Pharaoh. Pharaoh is so stunned and impressed, and he says to Joseph, you're going to be the one who runs everything, because the famine's coming. You're going to collect up all the food when we have some good years of harvest, and you're going to distribute it when, we have, when the famine comes. And Joseph suddenly becomes prime minister of Egypt. He's now the second most powerful man in the whole country. He's ruling. So his, his life has been totally kind of transformed. And then, and then his brothers come back on the scene because the famine's over the whole world and they're hungry. So they come to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And you have this moment where Joseph is selling grain and his brothers turn up. And Joseph's like, the murderers, the ones who tried to kill me are now here before me. And we've looked at what happens, how Joseph reacted to that and... Um, he basically set up some a ruse with them, trying to see if there's any big change in their hearts, in their lives. And the youngest brother, who's Joseph's real brother, the others were half-brothers, Joseph's brother Benjamin, he, he set up a ruse to get Benjamin to come back. um, To Egypt, so we could see how Benjamin was doing Uh, and he did that and that's what we looked at last time and now we've come to that point where they've come back to Egypt with Benjamin so all of Joseph's brothers are there they've eaten with Joseph and we looked at um, how Joseph was dealing with them and processing his forgiveness before them and now we've got to chapter 44 which I'm going to read today so if you've got your Bible go to chapter 44 verse 1 and we're just going to read that chapter it says then this is Joseph, said, Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks, that's his brothers, mill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as the morning... Uh, Was The men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone up only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Follow up after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? It is not from this that my Lord drinks, but but by this he practices divination. And you have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke them to these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then each man quickly loaded his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They befell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he is alone left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said... We cannot go down. If your young, our youngest brother goes with us, then we, will, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, one left. And I, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to you, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in my boy's life, as soon as he sees that my boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down his gray hairs, your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. From your servant, become a pledge of safety for uh, for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would become. Oh, sorry, that would find my father. All right, big idea today. God wants to see us transformed. Now, the focus of this passage isn't Joseph, which is what the story's been out. is even Benjamin, who's the um, the unwilling victim in this, It's actually about one of his brothers, Judah. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the story, Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, one of his half brothers. Um, he was the one who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery Okay, it was his idea he was the one who said let's not kill him let's make some money out of this let's sell him into slavery which effectively was a death sentence but actually he thought we can turn a profit on him so he's, he's that guy and if you read chapter um, <clears throat> 30, um, 38 in the story you find out a bit more about Joseph we skipped over it because it wasn't actually sorry more about Judah it w- wasn't in Joseph's story and we didn't have the time but actually there's another incident in Judah's life which shows him out to be not a particularly nice individual. Okay? So we're talking to someone who really really hasn't done well in the annals of, kind of acting well and being a good brother and being a good son and generally being a nice human being. And what we're going to see today is the change that has come over him. Joseph has played this ruse to get the brothers to come back because they needed food. There was no food in the earth and only Joseph and the Egyptians had the food. So if they wanted more food, they had to come back. And Joseph said to them, you can only come back if you bring Benjamin your youngest with you. So they've done that to so the protests of the father, Jacob, because he's old and he already thinks Joseph's dead. He think I can't lose my other son, uh, Benjamin, but because they, they're going to die anyway... He actually says, right, um, we're going to go down, you're going to take him down into Egypt. And we saw last time that that the guilt they have of what they did to Joseph is starting to have an effect in their life. When they were in prison, initially, Joseph put them in prison for a few days, they had that argument saying, God is visiting us, judgment for what we've done. Over our kind of um, over our brother, and Joseph was there, and he heard it through a translator because they didn't know it was Joseph. They didn't know he could speak the same language. So he kind of so he knows something's going on in their life, but he wants to check that actually there has been an effect and a change in their life. And we're going to look at three things that happened to Judah through this passage that were part of his transformation. The first one is that he had the secrets of his heart revealed. The secrets of his heart were being revealed. So. The story is they they came back down with Benjamin. Everything's going well. They have this massive feast with Joseph. He invites them in and they, 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 they get well fed and they drink to the small hours of the morning. So everything's looking good. And then he says, right, you can go back with your father, and he says, then he says, give them as much food as they can carry. That's really generous. He says, give them all the food they can fit on their donkeys or camels, whatever they had. Give them as much food as they can take back. Plus, he says, I'll give you your money back, so you didn't even have to pay for this food in this time of famine. Very, very kind of gracious of him. But then he says to his steward, he says, right, take my cup, this silver cup, which would have been more of a bowl, and he says, put it in Benjamin's sack. All right, and the steward You know, the second most powerful man in the whole country just obeys because he, you know, does what his boss says. So he puts in the coins and off they go. And the brothers must be thinking, we're okay. We've gone down, we've got food, we've got our money, we've got Benjamin, we're going back, everything's looking good. Then, as soon as they've left, Joseph sends his steward and obviously his men, and there'll probably be soldiers with them because he's very powerful. And he says, Cohen accused them of nicking the cup. And you notice the steward doesn't protest at this point because he's just doing what he's told. Yes, sir, no, sir. So he's like, all right, you obviously want to do something to these guys. And so they charge after them and they say, stop, how come you've repaid evil for good? Which is a horrible thing to say because they've accepted hospitality in his house. But he says, now you're saying you're giving evil back for all the good that was shown to you with the money and everything else. And they're like, but we we haven't done anything wrong. You know, there's no way we could have stolen this cup. You know, we would never do that. in fact, they even say things like, you know, you know, if, if we are, then we should be punished for it, knowing that they are not guilty. They haven't stolen any cup, so they search through the, um, they search through all the baggage, and they say, "Well, open your sack. There's nothing in there. Open your sack." They go through all the brothers. They get to poor Benjamin at the end. Opens out his sack, and on the sand appears this cup, and it says, um, "How do they react?" It says they tear their clothes in grief because they know that they're surrounded by kind of. Um, Soldiers or people who are going to catch them, they're in a foreign country, they've got this powerful man who's accusing them of something and they've been caught in essence red-handed. And it just says they tear their clothes in grief, it's a sign, and they are kind of frog-marched back towards Joseph and his house. And actually they're thinking, and, and as they're going back I don't know quite know what's going through their minds, but they must be thinking, uh-oh, we're for the high jump because this guy's, we, we've, like we've nicked something from him and he's gonna punish us, prison, execution, who knows what's gonna happen. A little bit about the cup. The cup would have been this bowl and it says it was been used for practice of divination. They, um, something called hydromancy where they put water and oil into a bowl and let it kind of mix together. And through that, the the practice would say you can predict something. You can predict the future, whether it's health or sickness is going to happen in war, whether you're going to win or or lose, all these kind of things. So that's that's what it was. And um, Joseph, interestingly, makes a comment in in verse 15. He said, how dumb are you to nick um, an item used for telling the future? I mean, that's the irony in that. It's actually I can tell the future and you're stealing it. You know, Even though he's, he's actually planted on it. But they've been like, oh no. But anyway, so that's what they do. So they, they've been barched back and he's saying, you've stolen this. And it would obviously have been quite a sacred object in the house. And they'd have been in the house. And he says, how could you do this evil thing to me? Now Judah, who's there, he comes to the fore in this. Now Judah knows, without a shadow of a doubt, he's not guilty. He knows he hasn't nicked it. You know, he would know that about himself. It was, it was in Benjamin's sack. maybe not sure about Benjamin. But he knows he is not guilty in this particular situation. Yet, what does he do? He acknowledges his guilt, not just his guilt, but the guilt of his brothers before Joseph. Because what we've got here, we've got memories being brought to the surface. We've suddenly got the younger brother in a situation where they could all cut and run. Benjamin is the youngest brother. He's the one who's been caught red-handed, and all the others could say, it was Benjamin, let's go." And what would have this brought memories back to him about? Joseph, the youngest brother who they all turned on and effectively murdered. And So, Joseph, so Judah in here, if you've got a situation where God has seemed to put the finger on something in their life, and what does Judah do? He immediately confesses guilt on behalf of all of them, for something they clearly haven't done. So what is he talking about? He's talking about, he's being provoked about what happened 20, over 20 years ago. Him and his brothers have been carrying guilt before their father and before God for over 20 years of their brother's murder. So day in, day out, they'd have been dealing with their dad who thinks their brother was killed by a wild animal, it says, but they know they killed him. And he's been carrying that for decades of his life and suddenly he's in a situation where he's been kind of caught with something and we saw from the previous chapter that the Reuben, the eldest, was saying actually God is visiting judgment on us for something that we've done a long time ago and kind of got away with in a worldly sense but we haven't got away with it before God and so the guilt in his life must have been crippling, must have been crippling for all the brothers that they know what they had done and they have to live with their father who would have mourned Joseph's death would have mourned what happened and they'd had to live with it and suddenly the guilt has been pushed and his heart has been exposed and he's just confessing guilt to something that he clearly isn't guilty of he hasn't stolen that cup he wasn't even behind it and I just want to kind of today actually let's talk about us is there guilt you carry over things you've done in your life because it's a very heavy burden to carry the story runs, I don't know how true it is, but it, it's either attributed to Mark Twain, the author, or Arthur Conan Doyle, the author who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. He apparently wrote a telegram to 12 prominent people, and he wrote, he wrote six words in it. All it said was, all is discovered, flee at once. Within 24 hours, all of the people had left town. And that's all the telegram said, because it, it pushed on something in their lives. And he didn't know what it was, but it clearly pushed on there. And the reality is we all carry things in our lives that we're not happy about, things we're not proud about, things that would cause us shame. And these things could be something way in the past, like in the story. These things could be very much up to the present, things that have happened just recently. They could be things that you've done, things that you've said, things that you've thought, things that you haven't done that you know you should have done and you actually you kind of, you feel guilt because you didn't intervene when you could have intervened in that. I've, um, in my, when I used to be a primary school teacher, I, I could see this in children when you caught them at something. And suddenly the guilt hit them for something they'd done. And they, they, they just squirmed in their seats when you know that you said, so, did you whack your classmates and they'd be like, no, he said, but I've got 10 witnesses here who see who saw you do it. and they're like, no, I didn't and the CCTV, they caught you doing it and it's like, no, I didn't and the guilt would just be crushing them. Now, you can see it in children like that but in adults, we're a little, we're a little bit more smart, we internalize a little bit more, we try not to get caught so much but the guilt still remains, the guilt still remains and I wonder, <clears throat> I've been in sermons where preachers have said things like this that have made me squirm so I'm going to say it to you just because it, it works. Um, But imagine things like, imagine if you've got the big screen up here. Imagine if the the secrets of our heart were displayed on it for everyone to see. Everything you'd ever thought, everything you'd ever said that people might have missed. Things that you'd done that you thought no one knows about that except God. And the point is we all kind of deal with those situations. And the way that we have to deal with that, first of all, is to be honest. The Bible just calls it confession. We need to be honest with ourselves ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves with what we've done. Because, you know, we can actually lie to ourselves about things. We can even deny ourselves. We can even rewrite the past in our heads. We can even change what we've done, even though we know we've done it. And we, we need to be honest with who we are. Honest with what we've done. Honest with what we thought. Honest with us, with how we've acted. Put our kind of, you know, say, this is, this is what I've been like. And then we need to be honest with God. Acknowledge before Him what we've done. Because the great irony with God is He knows anyway. <laughs> We try and con him, like, oh yeah, I didn't do that. And he's like, the teacher's like, I saw you. I actually saw you do it. But I knew you can do it before you even did it. And yet you did it. And I know about this. And it's being honesty. And you have that position kind of where your heart is exposed. What's the next thing that happened to Judah? It says he owned up to his sin. He owned up to his sin. Once he had been exposed, once something had been pushed in his life, he acknowledged it. It says in verse 16, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Back in a previous chapter, they've, they've acknowledged that God could be after them for something they've done. Judah himself, who said, has, has done things in his life that he is not proud of. This situation brings back the memories. He's got 20 years of kind of living with this horrific act he has done in his life. And suddenly when it's kind of exposed in this way, he owns up to it and says, we are guilty. He clearly feels sorrow over his action. Now his sorrow is different. The Bible in Corinthians talks about two kinds of sorrow. It talks about worldly sorrow and it talks about godly sorrow. And it says... Uh, It says godly sorrow is the one that leads to change. Worldly sorrow doesn't. And you can have worldly sorrow over the things you do. And worldly sorrow basically is being upset for the consequences of your action or being upset for being caught. Okay? You can be upset for the consequences of your action. You might do something dumb and, you know, you might end up getting hurt or, or a relationship might break down. And you might be upset about that. And you might be upset because you got caught you know you got caught red-handed you did something and someone caught you and you get upset about that that's just worldly sorrow everyone would be upset about that no one wants to get caught no one wants to have bad consequences or action but godly sorrow is actually being upset about the actions themselves regardless of the consequences regardless if you got caught or not you're actually upset about what you've done the fact that you've actually ultimately offended god for your actions and that is the one that leads to change and we see judah going through this process here He's actually saying, we are guilty for it. And when you get to the end of the story, the end of the chapter, what did he do? What was the ultimate change he did? What was his ultimate kind of final bargaining chip with Joseph? He said, just, I'll stay, send Benjamin home. Send Benjamin home, I will take his place. And we see this transformation. So he's owning up to his sin, he's looking for change. The Bible just calls this repentance, And uh, repentance is merely an acknowledgement of what we've done is wrong and a desire to turn and go the other way. A desire to forsake actions, forsake thoughts, forsake whatever we've done and to go um, the other way. And let's be honest, this can be very difficult. This can be very difficult in our lives because it means acknowledging that we've got things wrong. Acknowledging before people, ultimately acknowledging before God that we've done things wrong and we need to turn around and sort things out in our lives. And the question I have to ask today is, are there things in your life you need to own up to? Is there guilt you've been carrying or things that you know even now as I'm talking that you know I need to get that right before God? I need to own up. I need to be specific. Uh, The Lord's Prayer talks about you know, confessing confessing our sins and I've heard many people say the best way to do it is be specific as possible. Be specific as possible about our sins and that's owning them and naming them before the Lord and saying this is what I've done. If it's before people and saying I need to kind of apologize I need to get right with you I'm going to do it by being specific as possible about the things I've done and owning my actions owning my thoughts owning my words owning everything I do about it. And the last thing Judah did the last thing he did is that he trusted in mercy he trusted in mercy he realizes his guilt his shames and he throws himself on the mercy of joseph who he doesn't actually know is joseph at this point the most second most powerful man in the nation and that little that last section of chapter 44 is actually the longest kind of speech of its kind in the whole book of genesis And it's basically Judah's retelling of what's happened, and basically his plea for mercy um, before this powerful God. He he is incredibly respectful as he talks to Joseph. He uses the word servant. I think about ten times, describes himself as that man's servant. His father, that man's servant. The brothers were all your servant, recognizing that he is all powerful over them, and he literally holds their life in his hands. And he is incredibly respectful, and he makes this impassioned speech to to um, take the place of Benjamin he shows great respect and uh, realizes he's got nothing to bargain with but he gives these reasons he says here's the reasons that you can't can't keep Benjamin he says that our our father is very old and if we don't return with him he's going to die die of grief at the loss of his other son Um, he's lost Joseph he's now going to lose Benjamin and it's interesting how he describes his father his father was the cause of all the problems did you realize that his father played favorites his father played favorites with joseph which caused the brothers to anger to sell him off he's now playing favorites with benjamin actually now joseph's gone benjamin's my number 1 i love benjamin and how did judah describe him he actually describes him in quite a nice way a quite a tender way a quite a compassionate way about his father even his heart's changed towards his father who is still making the same stupid mistake and playing favorites with his kids and actually, he's saying, no, actually, don't, don't keep Benjamin here because my father will die through grief. He says, actually, Jacob loves Benjamin. He even emphasizes Benjamin's youth. He's the youngest. He's probably not that young, but he's still the youngest of the set of brothers. It might mean he was unmarried at the time. And so from the, from the kind of men's point of view, he hasn't kind of had family of his own. He hasn't had a wife. He's only having kids of his own. Keep him there. And Judah even says, I made a pledge to my dad that I would bring him back safely. And if that means giving up my own life to do that, I will do that to honor that pledge to protect my father, to protect Benjamin's life. And he has completely transformed. From the guy at the beginning of the story, the one at the beginning who was like, let's sell him into slavery, make some money out of this. The one who did the horrible things in chapter 38, if you read that, and this guy who's just lived with guilt and been constantly lying to his father for 20 years about what happened to his brother Is now coming out and saying take me not Benjamin he has been completely transformed and he throws himself totally on the mercy of a powerful man who can literally choose between his life and death he could kill all of them he could let them all go or anywhere in between he's saying please take me instead of Benjamin let Benjamin go free. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've had to trust in mercy. I've had my sin exposed and had to own up to it and then had to trust in mercy all in one hit at one time. And it's one of my more shameful stories, but I'll tell it to you. I was involved um, many years ago, just after Mel and I got married, in a car accident. I was sitting stationary while the car in front of me was waiting to turn right. And I was minding my own business and I got rear-ended and then I hit the car in front. So it was all this, and there's all trauma and everything, but at the end of the, when the police came and tried to sort it out, and by the grace of God, I was all right. Um, no, problems. I had to take a breathalyzer test, and I thought, that's no bother, I don't drink, that's easy. Took the breathalyzer test, passed, no problem there. Um, and then he said, right, Mr. Crane, where's your license? Where's your driving license? We need to check that. And I said, well, we've recently moved, recently married, I don't have my driving license, it's, it's down with the DVLA in Swansea. It's kind of, the, the address is being changed. And I, I kind of was a little economical there, because I, I should have done it earlier, but I we've been living there a while, but I finally got around to do it, and I had done it. And they said, that's fine, Mrs. Crane, you now need to bring the license to the station when it returns from Swansea um, to, just so we can fill off the records. And I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, I will do that. And then I promptly forgot about it. The week's passed and it's Sunday morning and my wife and I, as good godly Christians, are about to go to church. My wife works for the church. I've been asked to come on staff at the church and we're getting ready to go. And then there's a knock at the door. Sunday morning and I'm not quite dressed. I go in our little flat, I go down the corridor, open the door. Who's standing there? A policeman. And I'm like, it's Sunday morning. Why is there a policeman at my door? And I'm like, hello? And they say, are you Mr. Crane? "Uh, Yes, yes, I am. Are you Mr. Stuart Crane? Yes, yes, I am. And he said, Mr. Crane, uh, you were involved in a car accident weeks, months ago. And I could suddenly feel kind of the color going from my face and that, you know, that knot in your stomach where you just thought, oh, no. And I said, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 I was. And he said, and you were asked to present your license to the station and you have not done so. To which point I just, I'd literally froze. And Mel had kind of stuck ahead because we only had one cord on our little flat kind of out the, the kitchen door or wherever it was. And it was like, no, uh, no, no, no. I said, Mr. Crane, do you have your license with you? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Come in. Would you like tea, sir? You know, all this kind of stuff. And I go through our filing system, find our license. And he's kind of silent. He's, he's, he's making these notes on this thing. And he said, Mr. Crane, I, I, because you haven't presented your license when you said you were going to present your license, you're now actually kind of You've actually now, you're in violation of something. You know, something bad is happening. And I'm sitting on the sofa, just like in my PJs, thinking, I can see the headlines now. Do you know what I mean? You know, led out in cuffs. You know, this guy going to work for the church and my wife's the youth worker at the church and it's Sunday morning and the, obviously the, 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 you know, the, the, the newspapers will be there and there'll be the photos as I'm kind of led out in shame because I haven't done what I said I was going to do. And I just, I thought what else do you do in this situation? I just thought, I threw myself on his mercy. I thought, he looked like a nice police officer. I said, I am so sorry, I forgot. I just, it just went out of my mind after the accident. Here is my license. Please don't arrest me. You know, just, and I'm just sitting there and then of course Mel joins in and she's nice and I'm, she said, oh yeah, yeah, really sorry, really sorry about that. Would you like tea, you know, biscuit with that? You know, anything, anything to get out of this situation and I, I threw myself at his mercy because I realized I, I was completely in error. I had done, I was wrong. I should have done what they'd asked me to do. And there was obviously legal things about this. And to, um, to the, the glory of God and much to my relief, they let me off. He took the details and said, no, we won't, we won't pursue this any further. Just to, to, to round out the story, after that, I actually met him and his wife Soshi, and we became friends with them through another friend in the church. And he's a big American football fan, so I did like him. You know. And we got together, and he actually told me afterwards, many months after we were having dinner with him, he said, I should have nicked you. He said, I should, what you did, I, I should have nicked you. There could have been dodgy things going on there. You could have not had your license. I should have cuffed you and take you down the station. <laughs> and I, When you're having dinner and someone tells you that, you're like, appetite suddenly goes for dinner. But it was this I had to throw myself on his mercy, because I was totally kippered, and I just thought, i guilty but he, 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 he showed grace and he said I thought you were an all right kind of guy and when I kept dropping we're late for church we're going to church and my wife went to the church church Jesus church anything Bible here you know anything just to try and say we're not that bad you know he, he let us off but I had to I literally had to give in to his, his mercy and knowing that if he did it what he did, if he did something to me he was completely within his rights and he was completely right to do that as an officer of the law. Um, But I threw myself on his mercy and thankfully I don't have a record for that, which is good. Um, For lots of reasons. So, Judah threw himself on Joseph's mercy in this and we're going to see how that, um, you can skip on the next two verses in chapter 45 and see how that works out but we'll look at that next time. But how does this, what does this mean for us? How does it apply to us? Well, in the big sense this is the picture of what it means to be a Christian. This transformation with Judah is what it means to be a Christian. What it means to follow Jesus. Because ultimately what it means to be a Christian is for you to have the secrets of your heart exposed before God. For you to recognize that actually the lie that says you're a good person is what it is, a lie. Actually we all know we've failed. We all know we've done things wrong. We all know we've fallen short. The Bible says it's a standard. It's God's standards. Oops. Is that me? Did I do is that me? Okay. Um, anyway, God's standards is perfection, and we all know we've fallen short of that. That's what God demands, perfection. And we have, we've all failed that. In fact, if we're really honest, we've failed it way more than we actually think. We think we're this bad, but actually, no. When, when we do that all the time, we, we, we make rules to ourselves, we make resolutions at New Year, we say we're going to do things, and we just fail. Even the thoughts of our mind and the attitudes of our heart, which no one else knows about, We know what goes on in there and we know what we think about people and what we say about people in our head that doesn't necessarily come out of our mouth, but we know we failed. And when you present before God in perfect holiness, you suddenly feel very, very uncomfortable. And the response of someone, a Christian, is to put their hands up. That's what it means to be a Christian say, yes, I am guilty. I have done things wrong, I've offended holy God, I've been you know, horrible to my uh, fellow man and woman around him my kids, my wife, my friends, my boss, everything. I've done these things wrong, and ultimately, above it all, I've offended you, God, who created everything. And you're the one who created me and put me on this earth. And actually, I've offended you. And then we put our hands up and we say, "Gther," And then we throw ourselves on His mercy and say, "God, forgive me for what I've done." And the great news is, we have Jesus. God who came to earth, who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, who died a death on a cross in our place for the punishments we deserved. So actually we don't have to face them, we throw ourselves in mercy and we receive forgiveness in Christ. That's the good news. Jesus comes in and says, actually, you don't need to face the punishment of your sin. You've stuck your hand up, you've owned up to it, you've confessed it, but I've taken it in your place. So you can know forgiveness, you can know graciousness, you can know mercy, you can know new life, new beginning, and that's the joy of being a Christian. A Christian isn't about doing things. It's about stuff being already done in Jesus. He's done it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to be better, do good, come to you. You just have to trust and have your faith in Jesus. And when we go back to Judah, Judah's a really interesting character. The, the, the brothers that we've talked about in this story, all if you go through them, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, etc., etc., all the way down to Joseph, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. They become part of the nation of God, the descendants of God that we looked back, kind of in promises to Abraham, come through this family, and they become a mighty nation of Israel. And even if you go right through the end of the Bible, they're still mentioned as these tribes of Israel. And if you look at them, they're not the most inspiring individuals, are they? And Judah particularly failed spectacularly in so many places. And if we go to Revelation chapter 5, we find Judah turns up again. And we find one of Judah's descendants who's called Jesus. And what is Jesus described as? The lion of the tribe of Judah. So Judah, the failure. Judah, the murderer. Judah, the one who just did so many things, suddenly is transformed by God. And his, in his descendants, in his line, we have King David, the mighty king. And further down the line, we have Jesus himself. Jesus himself. So even through someone like Judah, God can transform him and put him into the line of Christ himself. He can become part of this great story and be a wonderful blessing um, to the people of God. And that's the great news for us. That whatever your past, whatever your background, whatever you've done up to this point now, God can still use you. And he can make your future so much better than your past. And he can do so much more with you than you can ever believe possible. Do you want to stand up? We're going to finish. Band, do you want to come back to get back and get ready? And I'm just going to lead us in a little bit of response time. A little bit of time of response for us. And then we're going to praise this wonderful, amazing God who transforms us. Because the good news here today, if you're here today and you're listening, God wants to transform you. God wants to take you from where you are and do more in your life. God wants to bless you and bring the best out of you. God wants to take your past, whether you think it's good or bad or indifferent, but he wants to make your future even better. He he wants to use you for his glory. He wants to kind of make his name known great through you, just like he did with Judah, just like he did with Joseph and his brothers, (coughs) recorded through, you know, thousands of years later, we're still talking about him. I'm just going to lead us in some responses. So maybe you want to close your eyes open your hands and I just want you to take a moment of being honest honest before God, not before me you may not know me that well but honest before God because he's here and he's listening and he knows what's going on in your heart and mind now even when I don't and if there's some things that you need to kind of acknowledge before him then now's the time to do it if you know there's things that actually there's stuff that's gone in your life you think God I just need to acknowledge that I did that I said that I thought that and this might be something that's very current it might be something that like Judah was years decades ago decades ago and the good news is God's probably been you know rolling things around your head as well I've been talking so acknowledge that before if there's, if you know it's something you need to confess before him You need to stick your hand up and say, I'm guilty. I did this. I said that. You know what I've done is offended you, God, hurt others. You just want to name that now. Be specific before him. good news is when we confess our sins the bible says god is faithful and just he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and so if you've confessed something now and you've you've repented you've turned away said i'm not i don't want to go near that i don't want to i renounce that i don't want anything more to do with that i want to go the other way lord by your grace you can receive god's forgiveness even here and now God says, I will remove your sin as far as east is from the West. So it's an infinite distance. I will take that away from you. I will give you righteousness and grace. I will fill you with my spirit. If you're not a believer here today, there's an opportunity for you to come to know Jesus for yourself. I'd love to chat with you about that at the end if that's what you want to do. But right here, right now, just receive the forgiveness and grace of God. And I also want to say that God, what God has got planned for you in the future is far greater than what you've got, what the bad stuff that might be in your past. God is bigger than that. Look what he did with Judah. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your grace upon us as a church. Lord, I want to thank you for your forgiveness that is so freely available to us here today. you never tire of forgiving those who confess and turn away from their sins. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for that. Thank you that you are a good, kind and gracious God and you love to see people transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Lord. God's people said, Amen.